1 Samuel chapter 8. When Samuel became old, he made his sons judges over Israel. The name of his firstborn son was Joel, and the name of his second, Abiah. They were judges in Beersheba. Yet his sons did not walk in his ways, but turned aside after gain. They took bribes and perverted justice. Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah and said to him, Behold, you are old, and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. But the thing displeased Samuel when they said, Give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, Obey the voice of the people in all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. According to all the deeds that they have done, from the day I brought them up out of Egypt, even to this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so they are also doing to you. Now then, obey their voice. Only you shall solemnly warn them and show them the ways of the king who shall reign over them. So Samuel told all the words of the Lord to the people who were asking for a king from him. He said, These will be the ways of the king who will reign over you. He will take your sons and appoint them to his chariots and to be his horsemen and to run before his chariots. And he will appoint for himself commanders of thousands and commanders of fifties and some to plow his ground and to reap his harvest and to make his implements of war and the equipment of his chariots. He will take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. He will take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive orchards and give them to his servants. He will take the tenth of your grain and of your vineyards and give it to his officers and to his servants. He will take your male servants and female servants and the best of your young men and your donkeys and put them to work. He will take the tenth of your flocks, and you shall be his slaves. And in that day you will cry out because of your king, whom you have chosen for yourselves. But the Lord will not answer you in that day. But the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel, and they said, No, but there shall be a king over us, that we may also be like all the nations, and that our king may judge us, and go out before us and fight our battles. And when Samuel had heard all the words of the people, he repeated them in the ears of the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, Obey their voice, and make them a king. Samuel then said to the men of Israel, Go, every man, to his city. There was a man of Benjamin whose name was Kish, the son of Abiel, the son of Zeror, the son of Bechorath, the son of Hephiah, a Benjaminite, a man of wealth. And he had a son whose name was Saul, a handsome young man. There was not a man among the people of Israel more handsome than he. From his shoulders upward, he was taller than any of the people. Now the donkeys of Kish, Saul's father, were lost. So Kish said to Saul, his son, Take one of the young men with you, and arise, go and look for the donkeys. 
And he passed through the hill country of Ephraim and passed through the land of uh, Shalashah, but they did not find them. And they passed through the land of Shalim, but they were not there. Then they passed through the land of Benjamin, but did not, did not find them. When they came to the land of Zuth, Saul said to his servant who was with him, Come, let us go back, lest my father cease to care about the donkeys and become anxious about us. But he said to him, Behold, there is a man of God in this city, and he is a man who is held in honor. All that he says comes true. So now let us go there. Perhaps he can tell us the way we should go. Then Saul said to his servant, But if we go, what can we bring the man? For the bread in our sacks is gone, and there is no present to bring to the man of God. What do we have? The servant answered Saul again, Here I have with me a quarter of a shekel of silver, and I will give it to the man of God to tell us our way. Formerly in Israel, when a man went to inquire of God, he said, Come, let us go to the seer, for today's prophet was formerly called a seer. And Saul said to his servant, Well said, Come, let us go. So they went to the city where the man of God was. As they went up the hill to the city, they met young women coming out to draw water and said to them, Is the seer here? They answered, He is. Behold, he is just ahead of you. Hurry, he has come just now to the city, because the people have a sacrifice today on the high place. As soon as you enter the city, you will find him, before he goes up to the high place to eat. For the people will not eat till he comes, since he must bless the sacrifice. Afterward, those who are invited will eat. Now go up, for you will meet him immediately. So they went up to the city. As they were entering the city, they saw Samuel coming out toward them on his way up to the high place. Now the day before Saul came, the Lord had revealed to Samuel, Tomorrow about this time, I will send to you a man from the land of Benjamin, and you shall anoint him to be prince over my people Israel. He shall save my people from the hand of the Philistines. For I have seen my people, because their cry has come to me. When Samuel saw Saul, the Lord told him, Here is the man of whom I spoke to you. He it is who shall restrain my people. Then Saul approached Samuel in the gate and said, Tell me, where is the house of the seer? Samuel answered Saul, I am the seer. Go up before me to the high place, for today you shall eat with me, and in the morning I will let you go, and will tell you all that is on your mind. As for your donkeys that were lost three days ago, don't set your mind on them, for they have been found. And for whom is all that is desirable in Israel? Is it not for you and for all your father's house? Saul answered, Am I not a Benjaminite? from the least of the tribes of Israel. And is not my clan the humblest of all the clans of the tribe of Benjamin? Why then have you spoken to me in this way? Then Samuel took Saul and his young man and brought them into the hall 
and gave them a place at the head of those who had been invited, who were about 30 persons. And Samuel said to the cook, Bring the portion I gave you, of which I said to you, put it aside. So the cook set up the leg and what was on it, and set them before Saul. And Samuel said, See what was kept to set before you. Eat, because it was kept for you until the hour appointed, that you might eat with the guests. So Saul ate with Samuel that day. And when they came down from the high place into the city, a bed was spread for Saul on the roof, and he lay down to sleep. Then at the break of dawn, Samuel called to Saul on the roof, Up, that I may send you on your way. So Saul arose, both he and Samuel went out into the street. As they were going down to the outskirts of the city, Samuel said to Saul, Tell the servant to pass on before us, and when he has passed on, stop here for a while, that I may make known to you the word of God. Then Samuel took a flask of oil and poured it on his head and kissed him and said, Has not the Lord anointed you? to be prince over his people Israel. And you shall reign over the people of the Lord, and you will save them from the hand of their surrounding enemies. And this shall be the sign to you that the Lord has anointed you to be the prince over his heritage. Samuel is old. He's a judge of Israel. Everything from his birth to his calling to his life has been done as a servant of God. He's lived under Israelite rebellion and Philistine oppression. He's called God's people to repentance. He's brought peace and stability to a very difficult region. He glorifies God, as we heard last week uh, from Scott, in placing a memorial stone, Ebenezer, so the people will not forget that until now, the Lord has helped us. Politically, militarily, spiritually, Samuel has been a good judge because he loved God. But the inevitable comes. He's old. The time comes when he knows somebody else will have to take over. So he appoints his two sons, Joel and Abiah, to be the judges of Israel. But we read in 8.3 that they weren't like their father Samuel. Instead, they took bribes, they perverted justice. In fact, what seems to be is that they were such poor leaders, this is what pushed Israel's desire for a king. We read in verse 5 that the elders of Israel said to Samuel that he was old and that his sons were corrupt. Instead of that chaotic leadership model, the Israelites want something else. They say, now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. In verse 6, why do you think that displeased Samuel? We read that he's only displeased that they said, give us a king to judge us. It doesn't say that they were displeased 
when they told him he was old, or that his sons, uh, quote Scott from last week, were a pair of clampets, or even that they wanted to be like all the nations. What does seem to displease uh, Samuel is the rejection, the rejection of his people. His whole life has been spent in service to God and to these people. And what has he got to show for it? Ungratefulness and two dishonest sons. Just stop and think about that for a moment. For his whole life, Samuel has been set apart. He was an answer to his mother's prayers, and he was a good and faithful servant. He loved God's people. He loved God. And he brought reformation and returned God's people to God's ways. Yet ultimately, Samuel was rejected by God's people. Give us a king to judge us. The presupposition here being that being led by a king instead of a judge would be so much better. It's tragic if you stop to think. The people already had a king, the Lord. And this king was able to overrule any nonsense that the judges came away with. Look at what happened to Eli's sons earlier in the book. What would our reaction be to being rejected like that? Not just after a few months, not just after a few years, but literally spending his entire life with these folks. Devastation, sadness, anger, yeah, certainly. But look at Samuel's response in the last few words of verse 6. And Samuel prayed to the Lord. Samuel comes before the Lord and prays. And listen to the Lord's response. Obey the voice of the people in all that they say to you. The Lord says, let them be. The Lord turns these rebellious people over to themselves. It's like when a mother or father says, do what you want, make your own choices, and you live with the consequences. Then imagine the bitter sweetness of hearing the rest of verse 7. Samuel, they have not rejected you. But they have rejected me from being king over them. The rejection ultimately is not about Samuel. God sent Samuel. And like Jesus says to his disciples in Luke 10, if people reject the messenger, well, they really reject the one who sends the message. This is not a case of wanting stable leadership or governance. This is not a case of them wanting prosperity for the country. This isn't a reaction uh, to worries about taxes or anything else. Make no mistake, this 
is God's people rejecting God. They still want a king, but a king who is not the Lord. This rejection is nothing new. In verse 8, we read that from day one, day one, these people have been running after other gods. So give them what they want. Give it to them. Let them wallow in their rebellion. But even in his grace, God gives Samuel, the prophet, a warning for him. In verses, 10 to, sorry, in verses 11 to 18, we read about the kind of king who is going to rule over them. This king, he'll take your sons to build his own army. He'll take your ground to harvest and make uh, and to arm his own army. He'll take your daughters to make perfume and cook food. He'll take the best of absolutely everything that you have for himself and for his servants. In verse 17, he'll take a tenth of the grain and the vineyards, either taking what was due to God and the tithe, or creating yet another tax burden for the people who will already be crushed. You will be his slaves. And one day, you will turn to seek the Lord for help, just like you did in Egypt. You will cry out, exactly like happened in the days of Judges. But unlike the cycles in Judges, when the Lord responded, here we read, if you take this king, the Lord will not answer you. This will be your so-called monarchy, your so-called king. You think the judges were bad? Just wait until you see the kings. Then in verse 19, the people's response. No, but there shall be a king over us, that we may also be like all the nations and that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. Whatever idealistic king they had concocted in their imaginations would not be the one that they would get. God's people outright refused to listen to God's voice speaking through Samuel the prophet. Their own desire begat judgment because they would not listen to the word If you go off and read chapter 9 on its own, you'd actually think things were going pretty well. In verse 1, we find that this guy, Saul, comes from good stock. He's rich. He's got a sound genealogy. He's a Hebrew of the Hebrews. Saul himself, we read in verse 2, was the most handsome man in Israel. Then, in a gloriously awkward translation, we read, From his shoulders upwards, he was taller than any of the people. That doesn't mean he had a long neck. That simply means he was tall, head and shoulders above most other folk. Think Dave McConkie tall. And Scott Woodburn Hanson. And John Brogan, sarcastic. Edit that out, please. Saul is looking out for his father's donkeys. They travel far and wide. No sign. In verse uh, 5, Saul suggests it's probably better to go back because Saul's father is probably worrying more about them than about the donkeys. 
Then in verses 6 to 13, we actually find that Samuel, this prophet, this guy who God's people have rejected, is famous. They think if they can ask Samuel, they'll find their donkeys. Just look at the irony. Samuel, who has been rejected and whose words have fallen on deaf ears, is identified in verse 6 as a man of God who is held in honor and all that he says comes true, including the stuff about the king. But he's still rejected and ignored. Anyway, after doing a bit of searching, they find some money to pay Samuel with, apparently oblivious to the teaching that no true prophet would accept payment. We find in verses 11 to 14 that Saul will meet Samuel as soon as he enters the city, Even in the middle of the rejection and the religious rebellion, Samuel does not quit. Samuel keeps on offering sacrifice. And we read in verse 15 that none of this was a random occurrence. This was God answering his people. It was ordained that the donkeys would go missing. It was ordained that Saul would think of going to meet this man of God. And it was ordained that they would meet just at this time. In verse 16, Saul's initial calling by God is as a prince, not as a king. And one who would save Israel from the Philistines. Because despite everything that has gone on, the Lord is still their king. For we read at the end of verse 16, For the Lord has seen his people, and their cry has come to him. Samuel sees Saul, and the Lord tells, uh, Saul, uh, tells Samuel that Saul is the one. Saul doesn't recognize Samuel. He asks where the seer, the old word for prophet, is. But then there's the revelation from this prophet. Today you will eat with me and you will sleep here tonight and I'll tell you everything that's going on through your head. And as evidence, Samuel tells Saul, don't worry about those donkeys, they're safe and sound. He also tells Saul that he's the most desirable one in Israel. A confirmation that Saul is the king who the people want. Saul seems pretty unsure, very humble nearly. I am from the tribe of Benjamin, the humblest of all tribes. Why are you speaking to me in this way? Samuel doesn't answer, but instead gives him the place of honor at a pre-coronation banquet, where Saul is given the seat of honor and the choice cut of meat. Saul is the one that Israel has been waiting for. It's a lot for a guy who was sent out to find a few donkeys, isn't it? verse 25 we read that Saul sleeps on the roof but early in the morning they arise get ready to go home except in verse 27 the servant is told to go ahead that Samuel can speak privately to Saul about the word of the Lord and in the opening verse of chapter 10 we find that Saul Saul becomes the anointed one the prince But notice the words of 
grace and how the Lord speaks. They are still his people. Yes, yeah, Saul shall reign, but they're not going to be Saul's people. The covenant that the Lord has made is forever. The Lord has anointed Saul to be prince over the Lord's heritage. The heritage of the Lord. They shall always be the Lord's people. And of course, I think most of us know that everything was pear-shaped. If you read on, you'll find that Saul foolishly offers sacrifice in place of the priest in chapter 13. He wasn't supposed to. You'll find in chapter 15, he did not destroy the enemies as he was supposed to. And you'll find if you read to the end of chapter 15, that Israel did indeed have a king that was exactly like the nations. Not a king who would lead them into war, Instead, a king who cared absolutely nothing for the word of God. Listen to Samuel's sad words to Saul in chapter 15. For rebellion is as the king of divination, and presumption is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you, Saul, have rejected the word of the Lord, he has also rejected you from being king. It's ironic. The people of Israel rejected God and refused to listen to his word. So the king that they wanted and asked Samuel to choose, Saul, he refuses to listen to the word of the Lord and is rejected himself. All the while, Samuel, this guy who was supposed to be too old, is still keeping on still speaking God's words. They didn't listen to Samuel because they didn't listen to God. That is why Israel and and Saul rejected God. Israel rebelled against the Lord by insisting on another king. Saul rebelled against the Lord by thinking that he could manipulate God. Why? In 1524, we have uh, Saul's confession. I have sinned, for I have transgressed the commandment of the Lord and your words, because I feared the people and obeyed their voice. I feared the people and obeyed their voice. That's the crux of rebellion listening to the words of people instead of listening to the word of God. Over the next week, try reading 1 Samuel 8 to 15. Seven chapters, maybe one every morning. And just note the effects of not listening to God's words. Ask yourself when you're reading, well, if the Israelites listened to the word of God, Would things have ended up differently? If Saul had listened to the word of God, would things have ended differently? Instead of trying so hard to resemble the world, they could have resembled the word. It doesn't feel 
a whole lot different in 2019, I don't think. God's people fighting to resemble the world so much that even though they retain the name church, they have pushed Christ out and refused point blank to listen to his word so that they may be exactly like the nations. Folks, don't think that when, you, when we hear a heretical sermon or we hear the abject blasphemy of what went on involving a Presbyterian minister in Derry, where he baptized the child of a lesbian couple during a joint service with a priest in a Roman Catholic church. Don't think that God is surprised or shocked at that. God allowing that is judgment on the church. That is God saying, you want to look like the world? Go ahead. Is it any surprise whatsoever that churches like the Church of Scotland and the PCUSA, their membership numbers are in free fall? And unless they turn to Christ, liberal denominations will be dead within two generations. There's judgment on the church. Up until men like uh, my father, like John Woodside, like Norman Duncan, came along in the early uh, 1990s, our own denomination, PCI, was broadly, not exclusively, but broadly, a liberal pit. And we thank God that that tide is turning. I was sharing this with some of the members at the Thursday morning Bible study group. Always a great pleasure to see the folks on Thursday morning. But I was sharing with them how easy it is to slide into people-pleasing. I cannot think of one person in the world who would object to that service in First Derry. It sounds so inclusive. Religion, marriage, sexuality, all one big melting pot of awesomeness. But the problem is, if you read the Bible, it's absolute bunk. Nothing in that service could have possibly glorified God because it stands so far away from what the Bible teaches as to be blasphemy. And who's at the heart of it? A lesbian couple, who I'm sure love that child dearly, but also desperately need to hear the good news of the gospel. A Roman Catholic priest, who needs to know and trust that he is justified by faith alone. A little baby, oblivious to the whole thing? Or is it an ordained minister of a reformed church who has sworn an oath before God to uphold the teaching that anything beyond or contrary to scripture is to be fought against and that whose presbytery, as far as I know, has done absolutely nothing to censure or discipline him? A man who was in a prime position to say, no, Baptism is for the child of one or both believing parents with a credible profession of faith. And folks, we would love to help you get there. What are we so afraid of? 
Are we going to be saying someday, I have sinned, for I have transgressed the commandment of the Lord and his words, because I feared the voice of the people and obeyed their words? They have the warnings. They know the consequences. And still, they go that way. So what's our response? Can I ask you, earnestly ask you, to respond like Samuel? Samuel's response to the people was not to criticize them or shout at them or shut up shop and start another little church filled with true believers half a mile down the road. Can I ask you this week to seriously engage with prayer? And specifically, can I ask you to pray for every minister and elder on this island, and especially those in the Presbyterian Church? Because when that Presbyterian Church in Derry becomes vacant, and if a Bible-believing man is called there, there will be people, perhaps even the session, who will make his life a misery because he will say, no, I'm not going to take part in that service. No, I'm not going to bless same-sex marriage. No, I am not going to go along with the teachings of the man in the Vatican who grants indulgences to get loved ones out of purgatory whilst encouraging us to pray to Mary. That went on Phoenix Park in August last year. That's not a pre-Reformation statement. He will be vilified and hated by people. Pray that he will not break because he is standing on the very word of God. Please don't think that this is a sob story or trying to get anyone to think, oh, poor ministers. Every job has stress. Every Christian has stress. The Bible says that everyone who desires to live a godly life will be persecuted. But this is a cry from the heart that as Christians we are called to pray for our leaders. Leaders, we will have to give an account of what we have taught and how we have led. It is our duty to pray. God does hear our prayers. God has not abandoned us. We are his people. So pray. Pray for that guy who will face a baptism of fire and dairy and whatever other synagogue of Satan that has, for the first time in decades, had an evangelical voice in a pulpit crying out that there is no other way than through faith alone in Christ alone. And that there are moral rights and wrongs, no matter how crass that sounds to the world. Pray that they will listen to the word of God, because they know that there is salvation in none other than Jesus Christ. The word of God, the beginning and the end, the Alpha and the Omega, the King of